Welcome to Creative FM, the Creative Leaders Podcast with Ivo Gabrovich, where Ivo speaks to designers, makers, and interesting brain workers from across the world to hear their stories and discuss creativity. If you're looking for inspiration to boost your own creative business, this podcast is your own supersonic aircraft. So take your seats and enjoy the trip through the fascinating secrets of success of outstanding creatives. Bon voyage. Welcome to another conversation I had with a remarkable creative. My name is Ivo Karpovich and I'd like to thank you for listening as well as for the kind feedback I received about the first three episodes and all reviews and ratings on iTunes. This means a lot and helps tremendously in kicking off Creative FM. If you haven't done so already, please consider leaving a rating too. Last summer I met Elliot J. Stocks who was in town to hold a typography workshop. Elliot is a designer who has worked for clients including Microsoft, Virgin, EMI, MailChimp and Campaign Monitor. He's also an electronic musician who records under the name of Otherform, as well as a speaker and design author. His current job is co-founder and creative director of the new lifestyle magazine La Gomme. He's probably most known for being the founder of another magazine though, the biannual printed typography magazine and soon-to-be book, Eight Faces. Elliot also used to work as Adobe Typekit's creative director. So of course, we talked a lot about type and typography, but also about working for Adobe, as well as working with your partner, turning a magazine into a book and releasing a record please check the show notes on creative.fm for links to his many projects. Before we dive into the conversation, one last note about the audio quality. Some of the previous episodes suffered a bit from minor problems, so this time I learned my lessons and bought a professional microphone. That's the good news. The bad news is that the brand new microphone broke just before we started talking. So I had to use the built-in computer microphone, which worked surprisingly well, but you will hear some noises from a heavy rain as it crackled against the windows. I hope you enjoy LJ Stock's thoughts anyway, in a hopefully dry environment. Welcome to my podcast, Elliot. I'm glad to, uh, to have you here. Thank you for having me, Eva. Glad to be here. So um, let's start uh, with uh, something I remember about five years ago when I had an appointment at uh, the Adobe office in San Francisco, uh, when all of a sudden I bumped into you. Oh, uh, yeah. What did you do there? <laughs> <laughs> um, so until about a year and a half ago, I was the creative director of Adobe Typekit. Um, and I, um, yeah, that was one of my, my regular visits over to San Francisco, mm -hmm. which, which I did while I was there. And I was there for just shy of three years in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, so I left at the end of, what's that? 2015, just okay. before Christmas. Um, but actually I'm doing some, I'm doing some, uh, freelance consultancy work with, with those guys again at the moment. That's funny. And when, what, what does a creative director at Adobe Type do? Well, kind of. I sort of oversaw everything really. So when I started, I, I took over, Jason Santamaria was the original creative mm -hmm. director and he left. Um, and for a while they didn't have anyone there. Um, and then I came on board, um, shortly after the acquisition, um, by Adobe mm -hmm. and 
um, initially it was just me kind of handling all design uh, aspects of Typekit, like the, the web service, um, making tweaks to the website, things like that. But we had a lot of projects that were um, starting to, there were ideas that were going to become bigger things, which have since launched like t- uh, Typekit Marketplace and and the desktop integration. So when I joined, we hadn't even done desktop fonts or anything. It was purely a web font service. Um, and so I was doing all the design around that kind of stuff. But it, as it evolved and other people came on board, like like Jake Giltsoff, um, it became more of a sort of overseeing uh, role in terms of everything design related. Um, so it was, I did a lot of brand materials. So when we did any advertising or anything like that, um, and also looking after integrations into other apps. So when we integrate into Photoshop and illustration and design, um, I sort of played a, a big part in that. Um, and, and tried to just, well, we, we turned it from, from something that was at the time, just a web font service and, and, you know, probably the best known at the time. Um, Google Fonts wasn't such a big thing back then. Um, to something that did desktop apps, and then you know, um, yeah, into what Typekit is is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, it was um, yeah, it was, it was a really a really fun time and a really really amazing team of people as well. Yeah, speaking about the team, uh, I uh, I mean I know quite some of the team, but yeah. I also had a quick check at the current Typekit staff page and. According to the titles, I had the impression that the company is first looking at talented people and their best skills and then forming a job around them. Would you agree to that assumption or? Um, yeah. And I think, I think to, to a large degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know that when Adobe acquired Typekit, a lot of Typekit's way of doing things permeated Adobe's culture internally. Mm-hmm. And it, that was quite a radical change at the time. And Jeff Fien, who was the one of the founders of Typekit, um, and CEO who went on to, to steer a lot of the Adobe stuff. Um, the Adobe.com relaunch happened under Jeff's, um, leadership and a lot, just a lot of the, the culture that existed within Typekit mm-hmm. that, that, uh, found its way into Adobe in general, um, which was in a, in a really positive way. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think I, I wouldn't want to say necessarily about uh, whether, Forming uh, roles around talented people is something that that has gone across the board. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there's there's definitely been really good folks involved involved in Typekit, and it's always been about you know very much pushing for the, the right kind of people. Mm-hmm. And and what what did they look for to get from you? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the ironic thing is that I've been a web designer for many many years and done you know, web, web centric work. Um, and then I started doing little bits of print design and mm. I, I founded eight faces magazine just as something I wanted to do because I wanted to do a large scale print project. Obviously it's about type and, you know, very type centric and that's how probably I met you and all kinds of folks in, in the, the type world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's funny because I found out after they hired me that the main reason they had hired me, me was because of eight faces, which mm-hmm. I find really strange because it was, not only something that at the time was, I felt sort of out, not, not outside of my skill set, but something that was very new to me. I wasn't experienced. I didn't come from a traditional print design background. I kind of found my way into it through the web, but also because it was a side project and something I just made because I wanted to make something. It, it, I, I found it strange and ironic and, and very pleasing and, and complimentary that they hired me for, for something like that. Being a creative person, What do you think, or how is it like to work in a multi-billion-dollar company? What are the pros and, and uh, the, maybe even the cons? Surely there are no cons. 
Let's talk about the pros. <laughs> the pros are definitely that um, that there are versus things like startup life or working independently. That there is uh, that the resources are there for you to for to do, to do things that perhaps otherwise you wouldn't have been able to do um, in terms of people, in terms of time. And that was a big change for me. I'd always worked in kind of smaller companies or, or in-house um, in the music industry or, or, by, or by myself. Mm-hmm. And um, so used to always having to kind of like, oh, if only we could do this, if only we had some more time or some more money. And that was really nice when I joined Typekit to suddenly go, oh, we can experiment this idea for a while, for, for, for a really long mm-hmm. time. And even if it doesn't work, then okay, we'll, we'll stop it and go elsewhere. And just having the freedom to do that mm-hmm. was very liberating. Uh, for me, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and I guess the cons are, you know, as anyone would imagine, really, you know, mm-hmm. working in a big company, there are obviously a lot of different people that um, approval needs to go through, mm-hmm. um, and there can be, you know, politics and stuff like that. I have to say that working remote, I've worked remotely most of the time, and actually a lot, a large part of the Typekit stuff are remote, um, allows you to kind of avoid any kind of office politics that perhaps you might get in some other companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, there's, <clears throat> it was it was absolutely by and large a, a positive experience, and, and I think Typekit itself still manages slightly hard for me to say these days as an outsider, I guess. But certainly when I left, still operates kind of in its own little bubble within Adobe to a large degree. Um, maybe that maybe that changes, but um, that because of that, I think Typekit people get to keep doing their Typekit thing mm-hmm. without perhaps necessarily having um, some of the the the, the cons of, of, of being part of a larger organization. But but after four years, you left again? Uh, after three years, yeah. Oh, three years. That's right. Yeah, I, 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 ha- I had a really great time there. And, um, yeah, it was, it was uh, kind of a dream job, really. But I always felt, because I, I'd been independent for five or six years, I think, mm. and... Once I'd gone independent and I'd sort of established myself as an independent creative, I was longing to get back to that. I think once you've had the taste of that, it's hard to, um, it can be hard to, to go back and, and, and have a, a regular job. Um, so I was always kind of, I think I always knew I'd go back to being independent again. Um, and at the time when I was at Typekit, um, Sam, my wife and I started running Logom, our, our lifestyle magazine. And it was getting to that point where it was, it's, it was a, a side project that was so big that it, was, it wasn't really maintainable to have that going on at the same time as my day job. So it made, it made sense to go independent again and to, and to focus on the magazine and really build that. Mm. You, you, you've mentioned eight phases. Uh, for those who don't know it, uh, it was a magazine running for uh, eight issues, That's focusing right. on type and design forks, doing interviews and stuff. That's right, yeah. And one important part of the magazine was to ask your interviewees uh, what their favorite eight tape typefaces were That's and right, yeah. why, uh, which is such a simple idea, yet always entertaining and, and instructive from my perspective. And I always went through the eight lists of each magazine's first. Um, back then, actually, also to count the font fonts I was with <laughs> before at the time. Quite they they appeared quite often. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really fun. Uh, but why did you end the project after eight issues? So, well, I'd always intended it to only ever be eight issues. Um, obviously, the eight tie ties into it a lot you know i think most issues we did 88 pages so mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a running thing there but um i felt like 
Also, I'd always intended to be eight. Well, actually, to be honest with you, I'd always intend- originally I thought I'd just do one because I didn't think it would be very popular, <laughs> but it was. So then I had to do <laughs> after the first one. It was very popular, so I, I thought I think okay, the I first one sold out in, in a few hours, right? Yeah, it was. It was um, an hour or two hours. I can't remember, but it was. It was very quick. It was really quick. We printed less of the first one. I think we only did a thousand copies, but um, but still, yeah, it was. It was wildly. Popular. I, I really did not anticipate it mm-hmm. doing that at all. I'd just done it as my own selfish project. I hadn't really intended it to do that, but that was great. Um, but so I decided to just do eight. Um, and I, I felt that it had run its course in terms of the format. Um, and that if it continued on, I wanted it, I wanted to, it to still be fun for me and to be fun for readers. And I felt that it's, its format had just kind of. We'd done enough. And obviously there were way more people that we didn't get around to interviewing and, and all this kind of thing. But, um, I think, and, and I, and I would never say never. I think it could return again in some form, but I, I, it would have to be different somehow. Um, and it, it just felt like a very comfortable way. So, so anyway, the time came eventually and it just felt right. I thought I'd always planned to do eight. And when that eighth one came, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to kind of put this project to bed for a while. And, and and now uh, you are working on transforming it into a book, right? That's right. Yeah. And you started a Kickstarter campaign that funded it quite uh, successfully, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Where are you with it? Um, I'm running behind. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it's it's nearly finished. It's really nearly finished. Um, it's. I think there's probably. So we are recording this uh, end of June, yes. 2017. Yes, that's just right. Just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If we can put it back, uh, publish it in maybe uh, December. No, <laughs> uh, no, it's it's really nearly finished. So there's probably only about a week's worth of work left to do mm-hmm. it. I think um, it's just finding finding that week amidst kind of lots of other commitments going on at the moment. Um, which is probably, I think, a lot of people probably like. Oh, what are you talking about? You've got loads of money from this Kickstarter campaign, but mm-hmm. I mean, the reality, of course, is, is that nearly all of that money is going on production. It's a very expensive project to do. So, um, yeah, but it is very, it's very nearly finished. Um, it's the the final bits of typesetting, the last few bits, mm-hmm. and pulling it all together. There's a couple of things that need re-editing. Just to kind of, I want to make it, you know, really, really good, mm-hmm. um, and so. I want to just make sure that the, the time is spent on getting that, getting it right. Um, but we're nearly there and it's, it's a, it's a big project. And I, um, even though I've done lots of print projects now, um, and I knew what was involved somehow still one manages to underestimate these things. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I see. Uh, we'll see what comes out first, your book or this podcast. Uh, yes, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's, it's really I think I know the answer. <laughs> I, again, I really liked uh, the magazine, uh, and I personally own almost all issues. Oh, thank you. But why should I buy the book? Why should you buy? Well, it's um, so it's interesting because I think some people are buying it because they missed out on some issues, and this is, this is one of the reasons why I decided to do it because um, the, the most of the issues sold out very very quickly and so a lot of people did actually miss out on them um but interestingly a lot of people are buying it who say oh yeah i own all eight issues but i just wanted to have the book i'm a completist you know um so it definitely appeals to those people as well but there's new content in there so uh, with the, with the old content from the magazine um it's being redesigned and re-edited so it's presented in a new way um the 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 favorite spreads as we call them they're kind of largely intact but the actual interviews themselves are completely redesigned re re edited um the there's some new content we've done four new interviews um with with new folks and we're also pulling a little bit of content from the blog so um we i can't remember what year it was now but um 
we joined forces with uh, a blog run by Jamie Clark called Type Worship. Mm-hmm. And um, that became the official Eight Faces blog, and then Jamie had a bunch of good content there that we've decided to 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 take into print form and, and put that into the book as well. So there's a little bit of that, um, and I believe Monotype also actually uh, do some some sponsorship with some of that okay. blog and help out. So uh, yeah, and um, yeah, so it's um, yeah, Jamie's done some really great stuff. It's very it's crazily popular. I mean, all I, I take no credit for that. It's all it's all him. And it's, I don't even know, it's something like 300,000 Tumblr followers or something okay. crazy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. I actually missed the final issue where I think you mentioned, you mentioned your own eight faces, right? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I wonder what, at least what are your favorite three in general? Maybe uh, this has changed in the meantime. I don't know. Well, I'm glad you asked only three because I can't even remember uh, what I said. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I did. I, I did mine because a lot of people said to me, "Oh, well, you know, the same thing. What, what are yours? You know, you've interviewed all these people. What are, what are your favorite typefaces?" So in the end, I thought, "Okay, well, I'll, I'll do mine for the, the last issue." Although now I feel a little bit, I kind of cringe a little bit. Maybe it was a little bit too uh, <laughs> self-indulgent. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But um, yeah, um, well, it, I think it has changed because. Since the since that issue came out, which is early 2014, uh, one of my absolute favorite sort of super families, I guess, is uh, Tabac by uh, Thomas uh, Brazil, mm. the suitcase type. Um, and I use that to set all of the type in Logon. Um, and we use, well, we've actually just updated the design system for this issue. Um, so now it uses um, various grades of the serif for, uh, for the body copy and then the sands and um, the various ways of the, of the title. Uh, and actually the title isn't, uh, I don't think Thomas has actually released that as a commercial typeface oh, yet because really? we, I was using, um, some one, I can't remember what it was now. It was one of, one of the grades of the very high contrast grades of the serif, um, for the titles of each piece. And I said to Thomas, ah, you know, do you have one that's like a, I could really do with one that's slightly condensed. Um, And you know, slightly high contrast, something really, really suited to titles. He said, "Actually, I am working on on to back title." So he gave me. I think at the time it was just like the bold weight, so it was very similar to what we're using, but slightly, slightly condensed. Um, and then since then, he expanded that out to be multiple weights. And so now, I think without without sort of a uh, new look that we launched with issue six, we now use um, the light weight of the of yeah. to back title for. the the titles and I think it looks and, and on the website as well actually now and I think it looks really really nice it's kind of it's classy but it's still friendly um, and it's really it's uh, it's funny I was talking to a lot of people in the workshop yesterday that I ran um, about how and I always say this you know go, get to know your type designers because it's so nice having a relationship with with people who are often just one man bands yeah. and then you get things like Uh, an exclusive use of a typeface by almost by accident, mm-hmm. which is which is really nice. It's really great. I'm I'm totally with you when it comes to Tabac, but uh, you also mentioned uh, Lagom. Uh, that's uh, where your current primary focus lies on, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, Lagom is, uh, and I'm quoting now from a website, uh, a lifestyle magazine connecting a global community of like-minded creatives who care about thoughtful design, independent travel, and a balanced approach to life. That's right. That's so, right. so. What is what is your idea and thinking behind the magazine, and and what drove you to make this your primary gig? Um, well, I'm really glad that you read that out because that we've only recently kind of when when we launched issue six, and which has the slightly revised look, a slightly different format. Mm-hmm. Um, we also did a lot of work to um, 
really hone our brand and and really you know have a clear vision of of, of who we are and what we're trying to do and that that tagline that we came up with has, has been the result of lots of work so <laughs> can imagine. I'm, I'm really glad that that's in there as, a, as the, the definitely the most up-to-date introduction to what we're doing <laughs> so that's excellent um but yeah the the main reason it came about was because um eight faces finished in early 2014 and i was just completely although i was finished with eight faces i really wanted to do another magazine i'm really in love with doing large-scale print projects um and my wife, Sam, who is a writer and does a lot of editorial work, we wanted to, she'd, she'd started to help out and, and do a lot of eight faces stuff, but we wanted to do something together that was very much our own, like 50, 50, uh, the, the two of us. Mm. Um, and also reach a, a broad audience with new subject matter. Um, and although lifestyle is kind of a very generic umbrella term that, um, a lot of people, um, work in, you know, there's so many, um, lifestyle magazines out there we thought that we could bring something to the table, perhaps something a little bit more down to earth than a lot of um, lifestyle magazines, which can be very aspirational to, to a fault. Um, and so, yeah, and we, that, that was kind of our inspiration for, for starting something new. Um, and also the, the name of the magazine is uh, a Swedish term that sort of loosely translates as the idea of having not too much, not too little, not too much of something, this idea of balance. Um, and we sort of take that in a, in a very positive way. And, and this kind of, idea of a good work-life balance is a theme that runs throughout um, every issue really okay so let, let's let's focus a little bit on this um you said that yourself you're making the magazine together with your wife samantha that's right yeah um i'm personally not sure if i would want to work so closely together with my girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> she works in a complete different non-creative field And I like that a lot since it allows me to step out of my designy world and to put my issues into a different perspective. Oh yeah. So yeah, cross my heart. How is it that, how is that like, uh, assuming she won't be listening to that? <laughs> <laughs> she probably won't be. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, no, it's, I, we both really like it. it it's great. Um, it's, it's really nice being able to share. You know, if you're really into a project and you really care about something, you, you know, it's, 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 it's great. You know, it's great when you're, you're really enjoying yourself and you're at your work and you you feel fulfilled and you're excited about everything. Um, and you know, your partner is usually very pleased for you to feel that way, but to actually both experience that together is, is a really, really nice feeling. Um, and it's, it's so nice to feel that you're working on something together for, for the good of both of you and that you can both participate in the, the joy that comes with that um or, or and you know the the not so joyous parts you know where it's you have difficulty with contributors or um whatever that there's always you know you can kind of take solace um i guess you know but uh the, the two of you, you can kind of lean on someone else uh which which is really really nice um the the downside i suppose is that you know we ended up talking about content for the magazine before going to bed <laughs> and, you know, over dinner and, and, and work does kind of blend into, into downtime. But, but that said, you know, I really think if it's something that you really care about and it's, we don't see it as work a lot of the time. So, you know, even if we are talking about it, you know, late into the evening, it's not like, Oh God, still talking about work because it's a lot of it isn't work. I mean, sure. Some of it is work, you know, if you're kind of scheduling social media or something like that, but the general overall direction of, of making the magazine, it doesn't, doesn't feel like work. It feels mm -hmm. like something that we would, we would do anyway, whether or not we kind of made money from it. Mm -hmm. 
Do you have any tips for, for choosing type for people who are less experienced than you with it? Um, it's, it's hard. One of the things that I talk about in the, the workshop is um, the two major considerations or groups of considerations, which are emotional considerations, so your, your personal sort of gut reaction to, to type, to, to the shapes, to, to, the, to the flow of it all. Um, and then the technical considerations and the technical considerations, I think often can get overlooked. Um, even, even by professionals, um, when choosing, when choosing type, for instance, it might be that you choose a typeface that you love and your client loves or whatever. And you really feel evokes the, the, the atmosphere of the brand. And that's all amazing. That's great. Um, and then you start making some stuff with, with the, with the typeface and then you're doing an app or something and suddenly find that, oh, actually, you know what? This, this typeface just isn't suitable for, calls to action like it's not going to look good on a button um perhaps it's a very small x height and they've got uh very tall ascenders uh very long descenders that are suddenly starting to uh cause problems when you put them into different scenarios um and so it's it's important always to consider some of those technical considerations another thing you see a lot is people choosing type and then go ah it has an italic there's no italic <laughs> and so um Then, then what do you do? And then, then you, especially if you're doing something online where um, something is content managed, and then the editor starts putting in italics, um, and the browser's going to uh, do faux italics, and it's all going to look quite horrible. So um, yeah, and you, do, you do see that a lot on the web, even with some really big brands and stuff, um, and, and editorial stuff, you know, news, decent news websites, and you see the italics and their, their faux italics on there because either it doesn't exist, which I guess is more of a rarity, or that they're just not loading the right from files <laughs> this, this was one actually one of the most uh, annoying bugs uh, on fontshop.com uh, oh, really? project I did <laughs> and it, it keeps coming up all the time oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but only for technical reasons okay right? yeah <laughs> <laughs> to, to summarize the, the magazine topic uh, what do you think is the biggest difference between producing eight faces in Lagom and what was the most important learning from the first magazine to help getting the second one off the ground mm. Um, I think the big differences are, it's, it's funny because Eight Faces was a much smaller magazine, but it was a much ma easier magazine to sell. Um, and because of, uh, and I'm, I, how I, what I mean there is that um, if you like type and you like printed magazines, Eight Faces was a very logical choice. And I, I don't mean that I'm not saying it was particularly special, but just it was a, t a printed magazine about type and, and the, you know, not many of these things exist Um And, you know, it's a very logical, easy buying choice for a lot of people, I think. Whereas doing a lifestyle magazine is so much more broad in terms of the subject matter, in terms of the people um, that you appeal to, in terms of the advertisers who want mm -hmm. to. I mean, again, you know, getting advertisers for for eight faces, you know, such as yourselves, you know, back in the day was, was very easy comparatively because, you know, oh. You sell fonts, you want to advertise to people who like fonts, here you go. <laughs> you know, it's very, it was easy. Um, and I think one of the lessons that, that I learned or that we learned uh, was we underestimated how much harder it would be to, mm -hmm. to do a more, uh, a broader magazine. It's harder in terms of, uh, I mean, it's bigger, we print a lot more and we try and we, we put it out into mm -hmm. the world. Eight Faces was never in shops, only direct sales, mm -hmm. whereas now we're, we're stopped in, in shops all over the world. And yeah, that's been it's been a little bit of a steep learning curve. I think we we had a lot of success with eight faces, and I guess at least in the early days, assumed that it would be very easy, like with with Logon. And it, it was it was has not been easy in that sense. Um, but but with that, 
I think some of the lessons that I learned from running Eight Faces that have carried over to, to Largon um, have have been around that and also around all non-designy things actually so obviously there's a load of I learned a lot about print design and I was very lucky to have and I still am very lucky to have um, Eric Spiegelman, um look over everything that was done and criticise little bits of you know <laughs> there's a widow there and uh, pull this paragraph over here and you should change the tracking here and stuff like that and, and you know really really great advice that has mm. resulted in hopefully being the, the typesetting being better mm-hmm. issue by issue um, but um it's actually apart from the design things it's a lot of the business stuff which was for me coming from a, as a designer naively not necessarily knowing loads about business and attracting partners and all of that kind of stuff which is a lot a very large part of my role at the magazine is all the kind of the business side of things and dealing with logistics and distributors and um uh getting partnerships on board and kind of having to be a little bit of a salesman in, in a in a way which mm-hmm. is something i would never th- have thought that I would do, um, but it, it is. I quite like actually. I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want to do that role for someone else's brand. But when it's your own brand, I think that's it's it's, it's different because you're working towards you your can own goals. Get some fun out of it. Yeah, that's right, and it makes a nice change from just doing design work. That's the other thing as well. That write, writing, uh, photographing, like we do a whole bunch of different things to make the magazine. Even though we have a lot of contributors, we still wear a lot of different hats ourselves. And that's really rewarding because uh, it's it's very different from the client work that both yeah. of us do. Yeah. So you said uh, yesterday you you held a workshop uh, about advanced typography for the web and print. That's right. What what did uh, the attendees get from that? Well, um, hopefully they got a a big overview about um, about setting type on on the web and in print and the differences between the, the two and and I, I tended to focus on a lot of sort of core um typesetting principles that can be applied regardless of the medium hmm. um and the idea is that we sort of focused on the subtleties uh that that make the difference between good typesetting and great typesetting and really take um typesetting to the next level um not not uh, very focused on 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 body stuff not so much display stuff but um Subtle things to do with spacing and you know understanding decent measure and, and stuff like that, um, and how to achieve certain things on the web that are easy to do in print and and vice versa, um, and yeah, it was ho- hopefully they they seem to they seem to enjoy themselves. <laughs> Is there one one key learning that we also can get out of it? <laughs> they have to attend the all day workshop. Yeah. No, no, um, <laughs> when, when's the ne- um, next chance to do, to um, do so? When am I doing the next one? I'm actually going to be back in Berlin in mm-hmm. November um, at uh, Beyond Talleyrand conference, yeah. and there there will be a, another another version of it there as well. Um, but yeah, I guess the key thing is there's. I guess there's no one key lesson, but just that it's the the. The devil is in the details, and uh, and it, it's you got to get geeky about those details, and that's what that's what matters. That's what it's about, right? Um, speaking a little bit about web typography, um, what do you think can web typography learn from print typography and and vice versa? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think um, so. When I did Eight Faces, like I said, for me it was a big uh, change to do a print project, and. Because I was doing sort of client work, uh, web design client work at the time, I would do an issue of the magazine, then I'd go back to doing some web client work, then I'd do another issue of the magazine and go back. And I felt like each time I'd done an issue of the magazine, I learned more things to do with typography in general that I could then apply to mm-hmm. 
to the web. And it was really rewarding to, to switch between media and, and to, and to do that. I think, um, again, you know, a lot of stuff in the details, um, in terms of just spacing and, and remembering that, especially with responsive web design, the, uh, just because everything flexes and bends, there are actually many more considerations we need to make. Like you're, you need to really be more in control of your measure because it could change depending on the viewport size. Um, and if you adjust your measure, then you maybe need to adjust your 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 leading or you know your line height and CSS to to counteract that stuff. And every time you change a, a font size, perhaps there are other parameters um, that you need to adjust as well. Um, and yeah, I think. The web web typography is at such a great point now where you can do almost almost anything with it. You know, those open type support is really good. Um, there's a lot that we can do that in not many years ago was you know really limited on the web. Not not even just uh, website fonts, you know, but even when web fonts came along and had universal support, almost all the other stuff around it. And and someone was asking yesterday in the workshop. If OpenType was just a kind of nice, kind of fluffy decoration you could do on top, you know, I think of sort of things like swashes and stuff, which I think is, you know, it's a it's a fair assumption. But some some OpenType features are can be really integral. So, for instance, being able to turn on fractions. If you're designing a, a recipe website, then being able to display your ingredients for for something in with with fractions is a, real, a huge, a huge boost in terms of um, legibility and, and, and things like that. So, um, well, I think we're we're really lucky now that there's so much of that stuff. So there's little details that we can actually put into website. So, so for that reasons, would you say it's more difficult to choose typefaces for the web compared to for to, to print? Um, I think perhaps it's harder to analyze them potentially uh, because you. Depending on the service you're renting the font from, or buying the font from, or, or, or the foundry if you're buying direct and stuff, it's perhaps not always straightforward to analyze all the features that it has. If, if we're talking about you know things like open type features, um, that said, you know sometimes it is really easy to set some live type on on, on the web and, and try it out. It it varies so much, and I think that's the I think that's the thing. N now there's so much choice in terms of different providers. You know whether that's um, Big companies that, that license fonts from multiple foundries or smaller companies that do the same, but they have a, a smaller pool of, of, of foundries. Um, you know, folks like uh, FontStand, for instance, and they're kind of, and they're, they're sort of different business model um, or through to just individual foundries and their own way of doing things with like direct sales. Mm. Um, especially as some of those, Some of those might crop up in different uh, libraries elsewhere, and and some only do direct. Like I think, you know, Klim, Chris Sowers, his founder, I think he pretty much only sells direct. Mm. Um, and so, you know, navigating all these different ways of acquiring and using uh, fonts can can be potentially confusing for the user. Like like almost anything mm. on the web, we have so much choice, and everything is so available to us immediately. Um, that in some ways that can actually be quite daunting. <laughs> mm. And, and on, on top of these already difficult things, you have to face uh, technical questions like uh, web font loading, subsending, hinting, open type features, etc. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, subsetting can be, you know, quite confusing to the novice user, things like that. Um, and again, it's done, it's handled differently by different services. Mm. Um, you can, there are different options within Typekit, for instance, or, or, or buying direct from foundries that you can sort of create sort of 
different subsets yourself to reduce your kit size and some foundries allow you to do real custom subsetting and some foundries don't want you to because that's that's part of their business model is to, is to do that themselves so yeah there's a it can be a bit of a minefield sometimes at the end of our little conversation let's talk about other form your oh, okay. most recent project um, how would you describe it yourself um so, so this is my um, sort of musical side project um And actually, just before meeting you, I just I've just come from the Hard Wax record mm. shop around the corner where I found my EP in the oh, really? uh, in the racks amidst Great. lots of other records. So I was quite happy about that. Um, <laughs> Very good. Um, thank you. Cheers. But yeah, it's um, I've always made music on the side, and I think with in the last couple of years, I've become a little bit more serious about it, um, and ended up forming a record label to to put it out there. And I know I have quite a few musician friends and and some people who. Uh, um, who do some do some really great stuff and who have hooked me up with all the kind of right people and got helped me get sorted with distribution and all this kind of stuff um, to make it uh, to make it properly so it would go from just being I mean it is still very much a side project but something that I hope will yeah. over time become a little bit bigger um, so yeah it's musically it's kind of I guess it would loosely be grouped into a sort of techno genre <laughs> um, although I kind of have a bit of a problem with the term but it's sort of atmospheric techno I guess you could sort of say um, and yeah the, the, the EP that I've just released is the, is the first proper mm -hmm. release from from me as as other form yes uh, saying techno in 2017 sounds a little bit yeah I know that's the problem I have with it. and uh, you know anyone who does do techno professionally knows that it's a very different mm. to what most people probably consider to be techno you know like the kind of 1990s kind of two unlimited style <laughs> <laughs> it was Eurodance, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still great. I'm also very much into electronic music and um, uh, especially trance music. Okay, cool. Also, trance sounds. Also, when you say that, yeah, I think yeah. it's called EDM these days. Oh, okay, yeah. Of like course, I don't yeah. know. It's just also I don't know. <laughs> so I, I also say I always say uh, I'm I'm into electronic. Electronic so is a safe. Yeah, I, I tend to I tend to <clears throat> lean towards that as well. Sure. <laughs> Um, I, I wonder how does uh, the musician part of you fit into your overall life as a creative person? Is this something you just have to do because it is in you? Is this something you expect to make a living from? Or is this something that you think was missing in your portfolio? You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it, it's the, it, yeah, it definitely falls under that whole just something that has to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely don't expect to ever sort of make it a, um, a full-time career. I don't know if that's even possible <laughs> these days. No, that's not true. I do, I do know. I have a few music, musician friends who are professional musicians. Um, but I also have a lot who are very successful and yet they still have to have day jobs. <laughs> so, um, I, I actually all, always like doing a lot of different things. I think I have quite a short attention span. So in the same way that I like doing web design and print design, and I also like doing, photography and writing and, and, and the business side of the magazine and music. And I see them all as very separate mm. things and I, I like keeping it interesting uh, that way. But music is definitely, um, I've been doing more of it recently in the last couple of years. Again, like I said, sort of trying to make it a little bit more of a, mm. a proper thing. And I also think you reach a certain age in your life where you think if you're not going to try and make a go of it now, it's just never going to happen. And you're going to look back and go, man, I wish I'd done that. The irony being, I think I've done more music since having our daughter Uh, than before even though I have less free time than I've ever ever had mm. it's just channeling all of that into the free time you know so um, uh, but it's I know quite a few people who are musicians and designers and they say oh it's very similar I feel, I feel like the process is the same kind of thing 
Uh, personally, I don't. I, I find the creative processes for design and music are very, very different for me. Um, in that, I think design. Maybe I go in with not not a clear idea of what I want, but there's a something I'm aiming towards, and it's a case of sort of getting it out there and and sort of trying to express that through whatever medium. Whereas music, I used to do that a lot more, more traditional sort of song structures and things like that. I have an idea. I'm like, okay, how do I how do I make this? How do I make it sound like that? In the last three years or so, I started taking the opposite approach, which was just to not have any idea what I was doing and just set some sense up doing some stuff and see what happens and that kind of organic is a very overused word but just to let let it kind of influence itself mm. and that's where I think the more interesting stuff started to happen where get without going in with preconceived notions and just jamming see what comes out of it mm. and then when something decent starts to take shape then working with that and then coming back later and editing and tweaking and stuff like mm. that and and so for me, that's that's very very different to to design or kind of any other creative process that I get involved with, and I like it for that reason. I like that it's a little bit chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> and how how does the production process look like at all? And also in terms of when are you working on it? Speaking about your daughter. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, obviously, it's a very small amount of my time in terms mm -hmm. of in the uh, the uh, the big picture, um, and it you know have to kind of make really have to make time for it, but. Um, I do actually, though I do rather than confine it to evenings and weekends and stuff, which again doesn't really work so well with, with the family anyway. I actually try and set aside um, like a, a treat, treat it like a, like work actually, and to say right, this day I'm going to be doing some music, and that's it, mm. um, because that's the, almost the only way it gets done. And I really feel quite passionately about this actually, not not tied to music, but just in general. I always feel like it's always, it's never the right time to do something. There's always mm -hmm. more sensible to do something that's going to earn you more money or build your career or, or whatever, or, or just not even work stuff, but just, yeah. it's always more sensible to do something than the thing like that, <laughs> like music. But, but because it's always the wrong time, it's, it's never a better time to do it. So sometimes you have to just say, you know what? I'm not going to work today. I'm going to do this other thing yeah. because if I don't do that thing, that is literally never ever going to happen. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of that. And my wife's doing a, a similar thing. And she has some, some really interesting little side projects that, you know, that we've been discussing and, you know, she's doing exactly the same thing, just saying, okay, I'm going to use some of this allocated work time actually to do some, some illustration projects and, and stuff that's purely for her and in the same way I did for music and, I, yeah, I, I feel like it, it's it's the only way to treat it seriously is to, to treat it um, like, like it's work and give it that, that same time, that same dedication. Mm -hmm. So uh, to summarize it, just uh, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, why did you decide to release your debut album on your own label rather than uh, through an existing one? Well, so I, I have a couple of friends who have some labels um, and we were discussing the potential maybe for me doing some stuff there. But um, in the end, it was just kind of that they said, you know, you just, just put it out yourself, putting it out yourself properly. If you've got proper distribution, you know, proper manufacturing, everything like that, it's not necessarily that different from doing it on a proper label. You're still going to be able to get placed in all of those places. Um, there's a little bit of promotion and press around that as well. Um, and yeah, it enabled me to kind of have full creative control over the whole thing and, and, and get what little funds exist from such a thing <laughs> back as well. Um, 
and yeah, it's been really good. So, so I started this label just really isn't as a way of doing my own stuff. Mm. And I, and I would like to release on some proper, proper in inverted commas labels, um, in the future, but it's not, it's really nice having a channel that I know mm. will work. I, I know that I can use this mm. channel to get into the shops and get into, um, just into do people's it. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> Everyone start a record label. <laughs> 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 what did you learn from from that endeavor for your design you for for your design life or yeah is there something you what can get out of from, the out of the out of being record. a musician or um i don't i don't know it's a funny one because obviously i handle the, the the design for the packaging and stuff like that but it was almost um it was a very small part of the project like a very a very small part um And yeah, I think, I think a lot of people do get out, um, that, like I said earlier, they, they see it, the creative process is very similar regardless of the medium. Uh, but for me, it was just doing something that was radically different to, to the design me. Um, and that was, I guess that's what I got out of it. Just, just doing existing in a totally different world. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time and thoughts. Thank um, you. It was great catching up and uh, yeah, I wish likewise. you a good time. Thank you very much, Ivo. Thanks for having me. Awesome. <laughs>